0: Right, well, we're going to break bread today thinking about Leviticus chapter 16 and the Day of Atonement. And it's all connected to the Lord Jesus. That the whole narrative there is continually quoted and alluded to in the New Testament, and it's made relevant to the Lord Jesus. But before we get there, let's just start with uh, with our prayer requests. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we come to you. We come before you, Lord Jesus believing that you are the ultimate atonement for all our sins in every possible aspect and dimension of them. and We we pray that you will open our eyes to your word, and we praise you for your wisdom in the way that you encoded all these things in your word, in the law of Moses so long ago. We pray that you'll go with us and send the Lord Jesus very soon to appear with the ultimate proclamation that we are forgiven and that we are redeemed and that our sins have have totally been dealt with and as we wait for his coming father we bring before you all our issues in our lives and also in the world as hadush said we we pray for the situation in ethiopia as phil said we pray for the situation in in ukraine and also in in russia and all that massive human suffering and we ask heavenly father that you'll bless each of us to have meetings with people whom we can lead to you and to your son please bless the work that we hope to do in europe this this week and we pray that you'll be with those recently baptized that you will fill them with the joy of knowing your son we think of emmy in indonesia we pray that you will bless her and her witness and bless the good work that phil and and miriam are doing and please bless Father the situation in Perth and as uh, the the church at uh, Foothills, please help them and be with all your true children, Father, wherever they are in all our secret struggles and our open struggles. pray you be with uh, be with my dad and help him all the things that he has need of at this time and those of us who are trying to care for him. But we pray, Father, that we might believe, we might believe the simple truth that we are forgiven, that we are loved, and that there is now no barrier between you and us, if we are willing to believe in the work of of your Son. So help us, Father, to understand it and to believe it. For his sake. Amen. So, Leviticus chapter 16, this is about this day of atonement. What happened was that once a year, the people of Israel had to come together and fast and repent of their sins. It's the only fast that's actually commanded in the law of Moses. And then the high priest would go into the tabernacle and he would uh, kill some sacrifices, He would atone for his own sins, and then he would take some of the the blood and go into the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was. This was like a gold box, and over the Ark of the Covenant were the cherubim, the wings of the cherubim, like the glory of God. And it seems that the actual visible presence of God, possibly in a bright light called the Shekinah, dwelt there between those cherubim wings over this gold box called the Ark of the Covenant and on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, it was called the Mercy Seat, he would sprinkle some blood and then he would leave that was the only time in the year he could ever go into the most holy place. Then afterwards there were two goats, one was killed to provide the blood and the other one he put all the sins of Israel on the head of this goat and it was sent off running free into the wilderness And then he came out and pronounced the people were forgiven of all their sins. In the New Testament, you you find this continually alluded to by by Paul and other writers all the time alluding to this and saying that all this looked forward to the work of the Lord Jesus on the cross. So you see how it's very relevant to our, our breaking of bread. So let's start in verse 1. Yahweh spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before Yahweh and died. Well, that's in chapter 10 of Leviticus. And because of that, he goes on to say in verse 2, So tell Aaron your brother not to come at all times into the most holy place within the veil. There was a veil or like a curtain between the most holy and the holy place, and then between the holy place and the rest of the tabernacle. And he should not come at all times before the mercy seat, which is on the ark in case he die, because I will appear in the cloud, this cloud of glory on the mercy seat. That is the the lid, if you like, of uh, of the ark of the covenant. And the ritual goes on to say he can only come once a year. Well, this whole thing then with this day of atonement, Uh, started because God was saying, no, my holiness is so great, you you need to just keep back from it somewhat. And the idea, I I think, is that God is trying to save them uh, from destruction, and that God is, in a sense, sort of in in retreat. And this is not only the... It's not the only time that... uh, that the, the, you get this kind of thing when he appears on mount sinai he tells the people of israel get away from the mountain i don't want to consume you when moses sees god's glory in the burning bush he's told don't come too close take your shoes off and in ezekiel you have the, the cloud of glory progressively departing from the most holy place to the temple then to the, the hill outside jerusalem and then moving away and initially god's angel went with israel in the wilderness and god says uh, after they sinned with the golden calf i will not go up in the midst of you because you're a stiff-necked people lest i consume you now this isn't god playing hard hard to get this is god wanting to save people we're told that we won't be tested beyond we can what we can bear god knows the level of temptation that we have. And so he will operate in a way that sort of is a bit flexible so that we, we are not led to positions where we, we sort of are going to sin. And that's a great comfort. That's a great comfort. That's why God says when he came out of Egypt, uh, you know, I could lead you direct to Israel, 11 days journey. But I won't lead you on the highway because you're going to meet some opposition from some of the other tribes and you will see war and you might get fearful and you might want to turn back. So I'll lead you on a longer way around. So God is very sensitive. God is very sensitive. And it's not that he, well, he's so holy, he doesn't want anything to do with us. He rather wants to preserve us and wants to save us. Now, all this whole thing changed because when the Lord Jesus died, the veil, that that, that this curtain, if you like, that, that shielded off the most holy place was ripped from top to bottom. God tore it. So that, as Paul says, the way into the most holy place is now open for all. So it is through the work of the Lord Jesus that God, again, is, is sort of back in, uh, in contact with us. Now, the question is, is... is was this day of atonement intended to be kept exactly as it is written here all the time every year well there's two parts to it <clears throat> There, there is the uh, the whole business with the the two goats the goat that's killed and the scapegoat that's let to go free and then there is this business of fasting for your sins and i think that <clears throat> you could argue that this whole thing about cleansing the tabernacle, letting the goat run free into the desert, etc., that this was really relevant to them in the wilderness, but the the bit that had to be kept going forward was the fast. And that is how the Day of Atonement in the Bible is later described. The fast. For example, when they were in the temple, I mean there was no wilderness, there was no desert into which to let the the scapegoat run free. So when you come to Numbers 29, which, God willing, we'll look at next, uh, next week, Israel sinned really badly, and they're going to be condemned. And Moses is told, make him keep a day of atonement. You've got it in Isaiah. Blow the trumpet. This blowing of trumpets is, is, was associated with the day of atonement. And keep a fast. Like, right? keep a day of atonement, no matter how makeshift, uh, because you need to be forgiven urgently. Well, <clears throat> he's told, verse 3, Aaron is to come into the sanctuary with a young bull for the sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. And then he is going to take the uh, the, the, the goat, <clears throat> the, the two goats, and one of them is killed and the other one is let to run free with Israel's sins, as it were, on its head. And so you think, well does that mean that all the animal sacrifices that they'd offered in the year before somehow didn't count and paul says it was impossible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin so you think well why why do this it's as if they've been offering all these sacrifices but oh whoops on the day of atonement you had to remember your sin and uh, confess it in your heart and then The priest did this day of atonement ritual, and then you were forgiven. So what about all those other sacrifices that were offered? What about them? Uh, Did they not achieve anything? Of course, in the bigger picture, you could say, yeah, this was all a parable to show that the law of Moses could not save. But going a little bit deeper than that, the law of Moses kept saying, if you sin in this way or that way, if you do this wrong or if you do that wrong, you ought to take uh, an animal and offer it as a sin offering and you will be forgiven. Well, was <clears throat> that not true? Does the Day of Atonement make all that not true? I would say that God's words, God's promise should be taken as it was. If you do this sin, then you offer this particular sacrifice and I will forgive you. Well, that's what God said. It's written all through the book of Leviticus or through the law of Moses. Okay, so that's how it was. So why the Day of Atonement? And why does Paul say the blood of bulls and goats couldn't take away sin? Well, <clears throat> you could just say, yeah, well, that was only sort of true because it looked forward to the blood of Jesus. So that's why they needed the Day of Atonement to sort of remind them. Yeah, maybe. <clears> There's <throat> another take. Yes, for some specific sins, you could bring your sin offering, kill it, and get forgiven. That's what God said, and he said, I will forgive you. If you do that, I'll forgive you. Okay. But what about all the other sins that are not actually, there, there is no specific sacrifice for them? And what about the sin of presumption? where God says that if you presume to do certain things, then, then there is no sacrifice. Now, Israel in their history in the wilderness did a lot of things like that, where there was no sacrifice, but they were still forgiven by God's grace. So I wonder, really, if the Day of Atonement was to make the point that, okay, all your other sins, apart from those that you've offered sacrifices for, but the mass of other situations in life, and your sins of presumption, where you have knowingly, purposefully done what was wrong, the whole kaboosh of sin is now going to be forgiven by this Day of Atonement. That's why, as I say, Numbers 29, let's look at next. Next week, God willing, which is the only time you actually read about them being told to keep a day of atonement. It's in the context of them having sinned really badly. They're about to enter the land the second time. They've sinned so badly with the women of Moab and they've turned to other gods. Well, that was it, you know, end of Israel. But they're told, keep the day of atonement. And as I say, Isaiah does this just before the fall of uh, of Jerusalem it seems they are told to keep a day of atonement to blow the trumpet and keep the fast so it is those sins that are not so simple and straightforward as it were that oh I did this wrong will I offer this animal I got forgiven okay but there's a whole load of other stuff in human life including i'm afraid cold-blooded sins intentionally done which we have all done There's no point saying it doesn't apply to me. It it does apply to all of us. And for many of us, as we mature spiritually, you, you find yourself saying to yourself, but Duncan, you know better. You know better than to do that or to have said that. And I think that that is common to all of us. And it is the whole picture of sin, presumptuous sin, the whole thing that is dealt with uh, in this ritual of the Day of Atonement. And that is why when you read the Psalms that David wrote around the time of his sin with Bathsheba, the woman he had an affair with, a married woman, got her husband killed and so forth, and he really had to face the death penalty for it, but God forgave him. In the context of that, he keeps talking, he's alluding to this Day of Atonement sin being placed on uh, something and it being dealt with and freedom uh, etc et yeah that that makes absolute sense and the other time you find the day of atonement language alluded to is in isaiah 53 which is a well-known prophecy of the lord's death on the cross that the lord laid on him the lord jesus on the cross the iniquity of us all right so let's uh let's read on so, verse 4, the high priest shall put on the holy linen coat, linen sashes, etc., and with a linen turban on his head. Well, the high priest had some beautiful garments. Exodus 28, the breastplate and holy mitre on his head and all very beautiful garments. He is not to wear them. He is to wear the clothes of an ordinary priest, just a simple linen coat and something on his head simple as that he is to be dressed just like an ordinary priest that's the point that the the regalia if you like the the, the wonderful expensive garments could not save and that's unfortunately uh, orthodox and traditional christianity with all this stress on their bishops and their priests wearing the beautiful clothes and all that is rather missed The point, the idea is that the only thing that was going to save them was the blood, ministered simply and in faith and trust by this high priest dressed just very simply in this linen outfit. Uh, So, verse 5, He shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for the burnt offering. You notice there that the two male goats are both described as a sin offering, but only one of them died. One of them was killed and its blood was, was used for, for sprinkling. The other one, the high priest confessed all the sins on the head of this goat, the scapegoat, Azazel, and it was led to, uh, to run free. But the two goats are described as a sin offering. So you have a situation there where one of those goats was not killed. So it was an offering that was a live sacrifice, an offering that was not actually killed. And I think that you know every aspect of this whole thing looks forward to the work of the Lord Jesus. But I think you see in those two goats the, the two aspects of his sacrifice. We are saved, we're told very often, by his death. But Paul also says, and we are saved by his life, that a dead Lord Jesus would not have saved anybody. It it was his death and his resurrection, which between them brought about our redemption. And you notice the, the progression. There's to be a sin offering, and then there is to be a burnt offering. All the way through the Old Testament, you see this. The sin offering always comes first, and then there's the burnt offering. And sometimes after that, a peace offering. First of all, you've got to deal with your sin, and then you make the burnt offering, which is what what symbolizes dedication, I think, and then you will have peace with God. So that's always the pattern, sin offering, burnt offering, then sometimes a peace offering. So, the result of us believing and trusting that our sin is totally dealt with, that we do have a sin offering in the Lord Jesus that has dealt with the whole thing, the result of that is dedication, the burnt offering to the Lord and his service. But you won't be able to really dedicate yourself unless you have first recognized your sin and the need for that sin offering. Now, this does not mean that It's only people who've been mass murderers and big time drug dealers or whatever who repent that they then become very zealous for God. No, it's a case of perception. That's what it is. That you may have lived the most apparently standard life, but we all are sinners. And insofar as you perceive that, then you will realize the wonder of forgiveness. And then you are motivated, properly motivated. To make that dedication, to live that dedicated life. Of course, in my life, I've seen so many people who apparently, at one point in their lives, made a great dedication to God. But where, where are you tonight, as Bob Dylan would say? Where, where are they tonight? They're not around. They're not living that dedicated life. And I think it's because that short period of dedication that they had was not properly motivated. Or because they didn't go on realizing the wonder of sin forgiven, that this is the basis of our redemption. Well, as I say, the whole thing is full of reference to the Lord's death, and you know, that the fact that one of them is let loose and then one of them is killed, it sort of reminds you actually of the Lord Jesus and Barabbas, that Barabbas is let loose free, and then the Lord dies, and and so on. But in another sense, they both represent the Lord's death, um, uh, his death and his resurrection. So the idea was, of course, that the, the goat that was let free, the scapegoat that ran away with all the sins of Israel placed upon its head, represented our sin being dealt with. One thing that it's very clear here, is that the masses of people did not see any of this ritual. Because we are told that the high priest alone was allowed into the tabernacle, there was no one even in the tabernacle while all this was going on. They believed that this ritual was going on, but they didn't see it. They were just outside, priests, ordinary people, the whole lot of them, fasting and confessing their sin and praying to God.
1: That's what they were doing. They didn't
0: visibly see what was going on. But then what they did see was the high priest reappearing, pronouncing their forgiveness, and they saw the scapegoat running off into the desert, free. Poor thing would have been traumatized, I suppose, by by seeing his fellow goat being killed and blood everywhere. And then, hey, goatee, you're free. Oh, yay. And he is taken out into the desert and he runs off absolutely free. And as the people saw that goat disappearing onto the horizon and getting smaller and smaller until he disappeared, that was a visual symbol of their uh, absolute forgiveness. But that is what happened and happens to human sin. That sin is dealt with in the Lord Jesus. Your sin, my sin. And they would have watched it get smaller and smaller until it disappeared. The (laughs) tragedy is that the Jews later on hijacked uh, this whole Day of Atonement thing and turned it into their version And in the Jewish version of it, the scapegoat, they whack it, they beat it, they spit on it. And of course, in the temple, there was no desert to let the thing run free into. And they took it to a steep cliff and pushed it over the cliff and killed it. It's supposed to run free. And of course, that's exactly what they did to the Lord Jesus. They spat on him, they beat him, and they killed him. They didn't get it. So. This uh, word translated um, scapegoat in verse 8, tzatzel, um, Azazel. You, you might read it in the Latin letters, it simply means removal. Uh, and the idea is that as they saw that goat running free into the desert, your sins have been removed from you. And you know, this has huge psychological dimensions that my sin, your sin, has been removed from me. Because people tend to unconsciously, subconsciously carry the guilt of what they've done with them. They carry it somewhere. Guilt over this, that, or the other, be it having an abortion, be it, I don't know, marrying the wrong person or hooning around when you were younger or whatever it might be, affairs with a pizza guy or whatever, whatever whatever you did, you know, it it, it all seems to remain in people. I'm talking on the level of the deep subconscious. Whereas this whole ritual taught that, no, sin is removed from you as far as that goat is running away from you, and it's gone. Now, as I say, the people, the masses of people were outside the tabernacle, not seeing the rituals, but believing that this is what was going on and you and i likewise we never saw the crucifixion of the lord jesus we never saw the physical red blood of the lord jesus we didn't see that but we believe that it happened and we see the result our sin separated well i've said that um, that both the goats represented the Lord Jesus. And I think the way that the scapegoat is let go, that yes, that was our sins being taken away from us, but it also represented the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. He was the that was the, the, the goat that was killed, yes, was him, and also the goat that was let free. And this may be behind some rather odd words of Paul, where he, <clears throat> apparently odd, where he says, for example, in Galatians 3.13, that the Lord Jesus was made a curse for us. 2 Corinthians 5, that he was made sin for us, that he was made a sin offering. And you remember that that, uh, I said that the high priest was to take the blood of the goat and sprinkle it once a year on the Mercy seat, that's the lid, the top of the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place, where the glory of God was shining between the cherubim. Now, that lid, if you like, of the box called the Ark of the Covenant, called the mercy seat, it's the place of mercy. And there is a Greek word that is specifically used about that, hilasterion. And it's used in the, by Paul, and it's translated in the King James as, he is our propitiation. John also uses a related word when he says that he, his blood, he is the propitiation for our sin. So the idea is that that blood that was sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant, with the glory of God shining above it and the wings of the cherubim over it, that that represented the blood of the Lord Jesus shed for us on the cross. Now, King David, before he became king, was persecuted by Saul, and he was on the run from Saul, and he wrote some wonderful psalms where he laments that he cannot come to the sanctuary where the tabernacle then was, because he was on the run for all all those years. But he said, I feel that I dwell permanently under the shadow of your wings. And he says this so often. So it's as if he's thinking of the ark with the lid on the top of it, the mercy seat, where the blood was sprinkled once a year, representing the blood of Jesus, the glory of God appearing over it, presumably as a bright light, whatever, we don't know, and with the wings of the cherubim over it. So there's the ark, there's the box, the blood sprinkled on top of it once a year, the blood of Jesus, wings of the cherubim above the ark, and then in between the wings of the cherubim over the blood on top of the ark is the glory of God. when the Lord was crucified, that was the glory of God Appeared as it were, not as a bright light, but the brightness, if you like, of forgiveness, absolute salvation over him. And David, I think, although the Lord didn't then exist and hadn't died at the time of David, he saw something of this. And he says, I live there. I don't just go there once a You know, the high priest alone could go there once a year. But he said, I, I live there. That's what I live. So you see how the fact that he was sort of banished from organized religion, he couldn't come to the tabernacle. This led him to this absolute intimacy with God. Now, banishment from organized religion, some people, it's a deal breaker because they can't separate church from God. They fall out with their church. Well, That's sort of the end of it with God. But no, you've got to separate church from God. And you see how David did this, and, and did it very well. But he came to that greater intimacy where he felt that he was there, living underneath the wings, the cherubim wings, where only this very scared high priest could briefly go for a few minutes, if that, if, <clears throat> every year, to sprinkle the blood on the on the mercy seat. And we're told, you know, as I say by Paul, that that mercy seat and the blood thereupon is. Represents the the blood of the Lord Jesus. <clears throat> so there, in His death, the glory of God was revealed. Absolutely covered in blood and spittle, naked, shame, apparently an absolute loser. That there, God's glory was revealed. Well, verse nine. Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for Yahweh and offer him for the sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for the scapegoat. Shall be presented alive and before Yahweh, and the um, the Hebrew there is stood up. The lot on which the uh, the goat on which the lot fell for the scapegoat shall be stood up before Yahweh to make atonement, and then sent away. Well, <clears throat> this is the idea I think of resurrection, most definitely, as the Lord was stood up. Well. <clears throat> The scapegoat, then, represented in a sense the Lord Jesus. Scapegoating seems to be uh, something that human nature seems to like. We like to blame somebody for it. If you lose a a dear one in a a road accident, then that's got to be blamed on multiple things. We need a scapegoat. If you do something wrong, well, I did this. <clears throat> oh, I, I did this because of this, that, and the other. So and so is the scapegoat. This situation is the scapegoat, and th- this can be, um, yeah, a pretty, a pretty damaging uh, way of carrying on because we we sort of put all our sins, all our grudges, all our desire for revenge on somebody who may be quite irrelevant to the whole issue. You see in a lot of primitive societies that, I don't know, if there's a drought or if there's a a catastrophe, well, they will take an animal or they will take a a statue and beat it and smash it and take out their anger, etc. Well, we don't have to go for any of that literally or psychologically because there is the scope goat provided that all the whole kaboosh of sin and its results and its consequence was put on the Lord Jesus yes he died as the goat that died but he he ran free in resurrection verse 12 he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from off the altar before Yahweh and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small and bring it within the veil. So, incense represents prayer. We are told that in Revelation 8, very specifically, that incense represents prayer. So, that incense went beyond the veil, right into the most holy place. But people at this time were outside, not seeing any of this, but they were supposed to be praying and confessing their sins. They were praying to God, confessing their sins, and now this incense goes right in to the most holy place to symbolize how those prayers were going right in to God. Now, what that means in practice is that a woman standing at a bus stop I don't know, asking God to forgive her for an abortion that she had 20 years ago or whatever. But those words go right in to the very presence of God. We can pray almost too uh, quickly, too easily. Because we're so used to it. Oh, you pray to God, well, God hears you. Yeah, God hears you. I don't disagree. But just think about it but your words or your thoughts because often we don't pray out loud it's it's a case of thoughts but those thoughts those words go right into the most holy place right before god yeah, this is amazing absolutely
1: amazing mm.
0: so um right 15 he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring his blood within the veil and do see the the prayers go within the veil and the blood goes within the veil and do with his blood as he did with the blood of the bull and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat and i said that the mercy seat is like the top the lid of the ark of the covenant <clears throat> as i say paul plays on this idea i'll read you from romans 3 We are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth to be a propitiation. And I said it's this Greek, which means the mercy seat. That's what it means. Whom God has set forth to be our mercy seat through faith in his blood. Just like the people outside, they believe that all this was happening. They don't actually see anything. To show his righteousness in the passing over of the sins done previously, very much the, uh, the, the day of atonement, the passing over of sins that have been done previously, in the forbearance or the patience of God. So <clears throat> the blood was set forth, if you like, on the on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, on the mercy seat. And we're told here <clears throat> that we are redeemed in Christ Jesus, whom God sent forth, sorry, whom God set forth to be our mercy seat through faith in his blood. Well, of course, in Hebrews 9, he talks, his old chapter talking about this, where he draws all the contrasts between the old high priest and the Lord Jesus. The old high priest had to offer For his own sins and then for the sins of the people he entered actually twice into the uh, into the holy place to atone for his sins and then again into the most holy to get forgiveness for israel's sins the lord jesus we're told made one offering to redeem us from our sins and goes on with all all the all the contrasts so the lord jesus was if you like, typified by these things. These things are types, but the whole thing works by way of contrast, not by way of similarity. As Paul elsewhere says, for example, the Lord Jesus sits at the right hand of the throne of God, the high priest stood at the, at the right hand, etc. Um, it's all by contrast, not by similarity. 17 no one shall be in the tent of meeting as the entire tabernacle when he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement so as i say there there was nobody else there there was only the high priest and i think that gives you another window onto the nature of the lord's work that in his death in his making atonement in this pouring out of his own blood as again paul says the Lord Jesus did this, not with the blood of an animal, but with his own blood, there was nobody else there. There was nobody really entering into it. You know, the disciples fell asleep in Gethsemane. They all forsook him and fled. I think one of the greatest aspects of the Lord's work was that he did it so alone. There was nobody else around. There was nobody, I don't know, cheering him on. There was nobody waiting there to catch him when he came through. Um, He he was totally alone. And in a a sense, I think that all real spirituality has to be like that, whether you're in an active church or in a supportive family or whether you are not. In the end, the ultimate spirituality is alone, I'm afraid. That is how it is. So, as I say, the, the people were outside at this time. All this that was going on, this work for them, they did not see. It was for them to fast and afflict their souls, and I guess to to believe, to trust in the work that was being done for them. Now, this whole thing can be read on various levels. On one level, yes, it is talking about what the Lord Jesus did on the cross. And yet in another sense, Paul says that the Lord Jesus has gone not into the most holy place made with hands, but into heaven itself to make atonement for us. And from there, he will come out at his second coming. As he he says, without sin, having dealt with sin, unto salvation. So in one sense, yes, The whole thing was done by the Lord Jesus when he died on the cross and when he resurrected. It's as if he came out and pronounced redemption uh, for all of us. In another sense, he has gone into heaven itself now, the most holy place, in the presence of God. Not in the symbolism of the tabernacle, but actually in the presence of God. And he is doing it. And at his second coming, he will come and reveal this to us with the assurance of salvation which means that we again are as it were outside the whole thing they could actually do nothing the people could do nothing it was about the only feast where the people didn't really have to do anything apart from fast and confess their sins and wait for the high priest to appear and this is why it's emphasized throughout do no work you are to do no servile work It's the strictest of all the commandments about doing no work. Not you, nor nor any Gentile that's with you. No one is to do any work on the day of atonement. Yeah, because you can't. And so all works-based salvation is totally just, no, it's just nonsense. They believed that this was going on. Same with us, we believe that beyond the apparent silent skies above us, there is heaven, and there is the Lord Jesus there at the right hand of God's throne, making atonement for us for all sin, repented of, not repented of, sin of presumption, not a sin of presumption, sin of ignorance, whatever it is, the whole lot is now being dealt with and it is for us to now as we wait for his coming as we wait for him as paul says to appear without sin unto salvation to wait in faith believing that he is not up there doing nothing he is up there making atonement for us
1: so then Verse 21, Aaron shall
0: lay both his hands on the head of the live goat. This is the only time when you read of both the priest's hands being put on the offering. There's quite a few references to the offerer must lay his hand, singular, on the head of the sacrifice. But here he must lay both his hands, and you could argue that it means to not just to tap, but to to lay, but to push down. Right, this is total identity. And confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions, even all their sins. And he should put them on the head of the goat and send them away, send him away into the wilderness. Well, there's three terms used there: all iniquities, all transgressions, all sins. And these Hebrew words for iniquity, transgression, and sin, they all have slight nuance of meaning. But if they were all just saying the same thing, then you wouldn't have three words. Um, We'll just focus on the word transgression, or the Hebrew word peshach, that is translated transgression. Because it's not a particularly common word. Um, You get it in Exodus 23, where Israel are told, do not rebel against the guardian angel that is going to go with you, because he will not pardon. Your transgressions. He will not pardon your Peshach. But here, all your transgressions are going to be dealt with. Because God Himself, we are told, does forgive transgression, the same word. Now, this same word, Peshach, this word for transgression, is used by David very often in the Psalms that he wrote in connection with his sin with Bathsheba and against Uriah. And he does describe in Psalm 19 the, the sin of presumption as transgression. He says, keep, keep me back from the sin of presumption because that is the great transgression. But we are also told that when he sinned with David or with uh, Bathsheba and Uriah, it was the sin of presumption. And no wonder then he has in mind the Day of Atonement when he's talking about it, because, yeah, you could say that transgression as the particular sense of presumption which the sin that apparently can't be forgiven but it was to be forgiven through this day of atonement thing no wonder straight after day of atonement um, there was the the very joyful feast of tabernacles that we might look at next week god willing where they live in tents and just rejoice intense just in absolute joy Yeah, that's why it followed the Feast of the Day of Atonement that, that, yeah, we have been forgiven. And of course, this is getting back to transgression. It's again in Isaiah 53 for our transgressions he was smitten, for the transgressions of my people was he stricken. So, all transgressions, all sin, all iniquity, the stuff that was not specified for having an offering specified for it in the in the law of Moses, the whole the whole deal of sin was dealt with. And, you know, I suppose that in spiritual immaturity, it is common for people to worry, well, did God forgive me for that? Could God forgive me for this? That, oh, right, yeah, I believe he forgave me. But that, what I did, oh, dear, uh, I don't know. Yeah, you do know. It is all dealt with. So, verse 22, the goat will carry all their iniquities on himself to a solitary land. Literally to a land cut off, a land not inhabited, a land of no return. And I imagine it could be a land maybe divided by rivers, a piece of territory where maybe the man who is to lead the goat out takes him over the water source so that God is not going to sniff his way back and lets him go. That is, I think, the idea of this solitary land, this land, that a land cut off is literally what it means in Hebrew. A land, basically, where there is no return from. And you see, that is the nature of God's forgiveness of us through the Lord Jesus. That that sin, I said that uh, at is... Um, as a the scapegoat, it means to basically to, to, to separate from. Yeah, that your sin is not going to come back to haunt you. Sin need not come back to haunt us if you believe this. And there are people haunted by their sins. They they go to church and all like look like there's well, nothing wrong. But in real close conversation, uh they do admit. All sorts of things that clearly haunt them, that keep coming back to haunt them. The sin, the result of it, may or may not keep coming back to bite you in terms of its consequence. And that's one thing. But in, before God, this has been separated by a huge distance to a land of no return, a land that is cut off. You know, Isaiah 53, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is right out of the Day of Atonement. He shall bear their iniquities. He bore the sin of many. And Peter quotes this. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. So, if this is how God has dealt with my sin, that my sin has been cut off from me, it's been separated from me, it's been removed from me, it's Azazel and has been taken to a land that is cut off from where the goat can never come back to me. Well, that is how I have to accept God has dealt with the sins of those around me that I find incredibly painful, hurtful, irritating, and I struggle to forgive. That their sins likewise, the old kaboosh of their sin, just like the old kaboosh of my sin, has been dealt with. We have to believe, if they are in the Lord Jesus, we have to believe it has been dealt with. I said that in verse 5, that the two goats, the one that was killed and the one that was let free, the two goats between them are a singular sin offering. And I said that there you have the strange idea of an offering or a sacrifice that is actually live, that is not killed. And that, I think, is the key to understanding Paul's words in Romans 12, where he says you should offer your bodies to God as a living sacrifice. The only sacrifice that stayed alive was the scapegoat, who was a sin offering but wasn't killed. And so you see that these verses that are talking, all this teaching that, that is talking about the Lord Jesus, suddenly becomes true of us. Paul says in Romans 6 present yourselves to God as those that, who have been brought from death to life. Just as there's 10 here in Leviticus 16, the live goat is presented before or stood up before Yahweh we are alive to God Romans
1: 6 the scapegoat
0: was taken outside the camp and released Hebrews 13 let us go forth with him without the camp so all this language about the Lord Jesus as the scapegoat as the bearer of iniquity, and even as the high priest, starts to be applied to us. We are told that the way into the most holy place is now open, the veil has been taken down, let us therefore enter, let us go in. In the same way, Paul says in Romans, as the Lord Jesus carried our sins, we also should bear one another's burdens of sin. So I think putting all this together, what it's saying is that, yes, the Lord Jesus did all this as the the high priest who went into the most holy place to get redemption for his people as the scapegoat running free. But it's all applied to us. In other words, we are to do the work of the Lord Jesus. What does that look like what it looks like is going to people who are burdened with their sin be they already nominally believers or unbelievers and persuading them of god's grace leading them to freedom we have boldness paul says to enter into the holiest with or by the blood of the lord jesus why why do the high priest enter the holiest to make atonement for the people we can do that for others. Now this is where it gets quite mind-blowing that we have that opportunity. We have that calling to not only benefit from all this, but to actually do it for somebody else. This is quite mind-blowing. Now, this is what absolutely gives us a mission in life. This is not going to church and, you know, whatever, just doing your thing. Twice a week, or three times a week if you're very pious. Uh, no, that this is your whole life's mission to save others. So do for others what was done for you. And as I say, we can bring them to the same freedom that we have. It's interesting that when it was a year of jubilee, that's the year of forgiveness of debt, the year of Jubilee always began on the on a day of atonement. So yeah. We are to, once the uh, day of atonement was finished, if it was a year of jubilee, they blew the trumpet and announced that all debts were forgiven. And Luke particularly uses that in Acts to talk about how we are to proclaim forgiveness and remission of all debt because of what the Lord Jesus has achieved. Well, the more you look for them, the more you find allusions to this amazing ritual, really. Even in John's Gospel, quite often he says, for example, in John 1, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, he's talking about the Passover Lamb. the lamb. But it's what I would call a kaleidoscope of images. Because although he says here is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, well, here is a lamb of God, yeah, that's a Passover lamb, but who takes away the sin of the world, that is the scapegoat. The goat, not the lamb, who takes away the sin of the world, Jewish world. So the whole thing is continually having in mind this day of atonement. And then you you come down, of course, verse 32 is very clear, the priest who is the anointed, shall do this what does christ mean it means the anointed the priest who is the christ yeah absolutely very all very very clear isn't it looks forward to the lord jesus well where does this leave us we are now going to remember the lord's blood and his body through which our sin has been totally dealt with and we really are running free. All your sin, you can see it coming to the horizon and then it's off your horizon. There is now no sin, ultimately, on our horizon. It has been dealt with. It has been dealt with. And it's the goat has gone to a land of no return. It's not coming back. It's not going to come back and bite you. Not all your stupidity, your sin, your rebellion, your presumptuous sins. They are dealt with. They are dealt with. And we can run free. No matter how physically limited we are by a health or situation in life, we can run free. And even more than that, we can bring other people to this. So let's try and give thanks for all these wonderful things. The, the bread represents the uh, the body of the Lord. And,
1: um, um here we got. thennu, um, would you like to pray for the uh, for the bread
2: <clears throat> Let's give thanks for the bread. Our dearest Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your salvation through the work of your son Jesus, that brought us. To you and your presence, and with our Lord in our midst. Our loving Father, in remembering our Lord, who freely gave his life and our appreciation for all that he had achieved, to atone for our sins, therefore giving us purpose, to become part of that purpose, in continuing the work of our Lord, extending your mercy and grace to others, that they too may come to experience and Feel the saving work of our Lord Jesus, who put his heart and his soul and his whole life into it. And Father, may we truly and sincerely become part of him and his work. We take and eat this bread for he is our true bread of life who delivered us from sin and death and opens us the way to your kingdom. May we continue to remember and celebrate the great sacrifice of our Lord Jesus that revealed his great faithfulness in you and the work of atonement in his name. Amen. Amen.
0: So this is the bread, as the Lord himself said, that a man may eat thereof and live forever. Well, we've talked so much about the blood of the Lord Jesus, and here uh, we have the symbol. There's so many things to keep in mind, but don't don't worry if you can't keep them all in mind. You can only keep focus, I think, on um, one or two aspects uh, at a time. Our minds are not um, so multifunctional to uh, be able to keep it all in mind, and that that's quite okay. Um, mm. Let's uh, let let's give thanks then. Um, I wonder, Phil. Phil Martin, would you like to try to pray for us?
1: Sure.
3: Heavenly Father, we uh, come before you to thank you that we have, by your grace,
1: freedom in Christ, and
3: what we do now in response to His wishes drink from the cup the wine symbol of his shed blood we know that our sins are washed away completely dealt with they don't need to haunt us because you have forgiven us utterly as far as the east is from the west so our sins are removed and that great barrier which has always been between human beings and yourself as creator ever since Adam and Eve has been taken away and we can enter into the Holy of Holies into your presence freely and you accept us because of the work of the Lord Jesus so of course we thank you, we thank him and our words are insufficient to express the immensity of what you have done for us, and perhaps one day we will appreciate to the full exactly what that has meant. So thank you for this now, and we look forward to that day when we will all be together in your kingdom under the Lord Jesus forever.
0: And we thank you in His name, Amen. 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 So this, then, is the symbol of his blood for us, and as we've been reminded, our sin as far as the East is from the West has been dealt with, and there is freedom in Christ. This is, you know, what the Lord had in mind, really, when he uh, engages with the woman caught in the act of adultery, he forgives her, and and he says, and the truth will make you free. This is the ultimate truth. This is the freedom, the freedom of the goat, freedom in Christ, the freedom that was promised to that woman, that you are free. It's,
1: It's dealt with. You're free.
0: Well, shall we close down with a prayer? Uh,
4: Yeah,
0: yeah. Okay, John. Yeah, off you go.
4: Um, Dear Lord, uh, 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 we thank you for this chance to come together as always and and we um, uh, uh, rejoice um, that um uh, salvation is promised to us through your son, Jesus. And we also pray that uh, as we go about our daily lives, uh, that you will keep us... Uh, um, uh wrong in our, in our faith in you in jesus name amen